0: Well, we're launching our series on future family, realizing that sometimes our families of origin have an impact on that family. I was on vacation last week in Louisville, got a, our four kids together and some of the grandkids, and uh, I noticed something that was uh, very different. As a couple of nights, I got a hotel and had an indoor pool, and I had our two five-year-olds, the two that are born on the exact same day in two different cities, and had them do a sleepover at the hotel, and we went swimming the next day. And I noticed a major difference in my stress level from when my children were that age to where I felt this time. just something about being a grandparent that's just a little less stressful, isn't there? Uh, I think part of it's just because of experience and wisdom that you know there's no perfect parent and there's no perfect children, so don't even try. It's also because I was on vacation and I don't have those time schedules like I remember with my kids and then when they were growing up trying to raise four children. So it was a very different experience, and, and I shared that with my daughter. I remember when I was raising my kids, and it seemed like every night you had to have this – day planner just to keep track of all the activities and how you're going to get them from here to there and everywhere else. I remember trying to figure out your meals and thank goodness for crock pots. I remember the multiple distractions that it was with kids all at those different ages and seemed to always be clamoring for attention. Was it, was it true for you that every time you're on the telephones when they tend to be the most disruptive and cause the most trouble or want to get into fights with one another? But I would suggest that as I talk to parents today, it seems that that stress level's been ramped up just a little bit. It seems like there's new pressures that are just a little little worse than what we used to deal with. That makes it difficult trying to balance those goals and dreams that you have for your families. For one thing, it seems that our jobs are more demanding. Used to, you kind of could leave that, that job at work and come home and focus. And now it seems that we we are on work 24-7, we're answering emails at home, not just at the office. Many of us are traveling out of town all the time, which adds pressure to the family. There was a study that said that 56% of working moms and 50% of working dads say they find it very or somewhat difficult to balance their responsibilities. And it's also harder to protect your children from the outside influences. When on their cell phones, the whole world can come to them, and they're always in constant contact with their peer group and often so rarely fully present with you, it's so hard to develop those family experiences that bond you together and help make sure that your values are more important than any others. And then there's spirituality that we talk about. We we still talk about valuing it. We still claim we want it. but clearly we don't seem to find the time for it. And if that's the case, then we need to be worried about the future of our communities and of our nation without that moral grounding for our children and for our grandchildren. So my hope is that in this six-week series that we can help take a look at all the challenges that families are facing as they try to develop with intentionality that preferred future they desire for their families, and hopefully by offering some inspiration and tools that can help us establish that faith that we desire in our children and for our grandchildren for the rest of their lives. <clears throat> now, for me, family has always been very special to me. I, I've always felt most alive when I'm around my children, even to this day as they are adults. And I've noticed that <clears throat> I, I enjoy reliving that joy as I, I work with my grandchildren. I, I love finding those ways to make my grandchildren giggle. I love taking part in their growth, even if it's just for moments. This last week, as we got them into the swimming pool, I, I got to see them expand their limits from what they used to. They did some things they'd never done before in the water. And it was a joy just to have a little piece in that growth in them. But I realized that part of my satisfaction, part of my joy in that is that I experienced in my childhood things that were lacking. And when I was parenting, it was a chance to, to find the healing that I needed and desired for what I didn't get as a child. I've always taken great pleasure in trying to make sure that my children always know that they feel loved. Because that wasn't always the case for me. I know I've shared some of my story before, but many of you are new. So let me relive some of it. But, In my family of origin, my parents were very overwhelmed by their own problems. My mother was a schizophrenic, and so she could go from a person who's just as normal as you and I, conversing and laughing, and within minutes could be in her nervous state, would cause her to worry about everything that had been said that day and happened, and she'd start walking the floors of our house sometimes for as long as 48 hours at a stretch, not even sleeping. You couldn't get her to settle down to even go to sleep. Our, our home had a worn-out place wherever she walked, that path over and over. She would play with her earlobe to the point that sometimes it would be bruised purple. And then when she'd see that, then she'd start toiling her hair. Had to do something. And she was a paranoid schizophrenic, which means that, that she was convinced that everybody was against her. If we ch- went to church on Sunday morning, we'd come home, and she would, would mention that somebody looked at her in a certain way that, so she knew they were angry with her for some reason. And you couldn't talk her out of that for nothing. She also thought the house was bugged, that people were listening in on her conversations. And that brought a certain amount of pressure on my dad as well. I've got a lot of admiration for my dad just to stick with that relationship all those years. He hung in there. He did his best. But let me tell you, sometimes my mom's condition got the best of dad, and he'd lose his temper. It wasn't fun as a child on the other end of the house hearing your dad yell at your mother like he'd do sometimes. But, you know, here's the thing about when you grow up in a dysfunctional family like mine, you don't think of it as being dysfunctional. It's, it's normal for you. I didn't realize that my family was different from most until I got into the fourth grade. And my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Proctor, happened to also be a member of my church. And, and we did at Plainfield United Methodist, like we do here, we put names in the bulletin of people who've been hospitalized. And so that was a bad year for my mother. She went to Central State Hospital several times. And I remember Mrs. Proctor coming up and leaning over. I'd be working on something. She'd say, How's your mother doing, son? And she'd say it so many times, i think, what's the big deal? (laughs) This is normal for me. This is what happens all the time. I began to realize that not everybody lives like this. So dysfunction happens in lots of ways and at many different levels. And probably most of you didn't experience anything as severe as my situation. But you know, most of us have some kind of complications we bring from our family of origin. Dysfunction is probably too severe a word. Maybe just, I like to use the word complicated. But most of us inherit some kind of unhealthy relational patterns that you don't even realize are unhealthy until you get into that new marriage and you discover that your spouse lives a little differently than you do. And you somehow have to figure that out. I came across an article that shared... Seven signs that you come from a complicated or perhaps dysfunctional family. Here they are. Number one, you have a hard time knowing what you want to do because you spend so much time growing up trying to make others happy. Second, you feel guilty all the time. You have a hard time saying no to other people. Or three, you end up in a non-reciprocating relationship where you are the giver the person that everyone comes to for help, and you're rarely the receiver. Four, you're always looking to other people to meet your needs. I've had many marital counseling situations where it's clearly one and sometimes both marry the other in the hopes that they're going to make right everything that was wrong in their family growing up. Or you're this perfectionist, and you're so hard on yourself, you're probably your toughest critic. Or six, you have a hard time relaxing. Can you just stop and do nothing for five minutes? Or finally, you parent in the extreme. Either you run your family like a boot camp or you end up just being laissez-faire. Whatever happens, happens. Any of those ring a bell with you? Dysfunction happens in lots of different ways. But let me tell you, if that's the case for you, you're not alone. And the interesting thing is, you can open up the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and find story after story of dysfunctional families, right? You've read your Bibles? What about the first family, Adam and Eve? Eve tricks Adam into eating the apple, and everything goes worse from there on. Cain ends up killing Abel. What about Noah's family? Noah spent all those days on the ark, and it must have been a very stressful time for him with all those animals. Because the next story we get is him being naked and drunk and his son walking in on him. And because he mocked him, Noah cursed his son. Or how about Abraham's family? God promised Abram and Sarah at their ripe age a child. And in spite of that promise, Abram gets impatient as well as Sarah. And he sleeps with Hagar, his maid. The child is born, Ishmael. And because she mocks Sarah, she's cast away. Or how about that crazy family of Isaacs? Remember the twins, Jacob and Esau, in the competition? And Jacob, with the help of the mother, connives to deny Esau his birthright. Esau gets so angry, he threatens to kill him. And so Jacob has to run off and live with his crazy uncle Laban. And what does he do? He Tricks him into marrying his not so gorgeous daughter. So he has to wait seven more years before he can marry his more attractive daughter, Rebecca. What a great family there. And King David, we've talked about. I don't need to go into what he did with Bathsheba. But even the Holy Family, Joseph and Mary, they lose track of Jesus for a whole day after a trip to Jerusalem and have to go back and find the Son of God in the temple. I hope that you hear all this as encouragement, to know that in spite of our imperfections as human beings, God's able to take all that and still build a people that would become a nation that he'd shape into his will and his desire. If God can do that, he can work with your family, no matter how complicated it might be. But how about that really dysfunctional family that we've referred to in the scripture today of Joseph. And what a great start they had in that family, right? Twelve boys born to four different mothers that lead to the twelve tribes of Israel. And Joseph is clearly the favorite of Father Jacob. Remember that fancy coat that he had made for him? Yeah, you've seen the musical, right? And Joseph is just a little full of himself. Even has the arrogance to share a dream that he had that told his brothers that someday they would be serving him. And the brothers just had enough of that. They took him out while they are out on a trip and dug a hole and threw him in it to be left for dead in a pit. But the oldest brother, Reuben, had a little bit of wisdom and decided that wasn't the best thing. And he went back and sold him to some Egyptian thugs as a slave knowing that somehow he'd be taken care of. And so began that circuitous journey of Joseph's life, because his problems didn't end there. He ends up as a slave with Potiphar, right? But he works hard, and Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire estate. Lots of responsibility, but then Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him and tries to seduce him when he avoids her advances, then she turns the tables on him and claims that he was trying to seduce her. And so he ends up in prison. But while in prison, he works hard again, becomes the right-hand man of the jailer, someone to trust he made the best of his unfortunate circumstances. And then he discovered his gift of interpreting dreams. And the pharaoh's cupbearer, which is the one who makes all the decisions about the wine... And the baker got thrown into jail for some reason. Maybe they weren't as good at keeping secrets as they're supposed to be. And while they're in jail, they have dreams, and he interprets them to declare that the baker is going to be hanged and the cupbearer will be restored into the pharaoh's household, and it becomes true. A couple years later, the pharaoh has a couple of dreams, and no one can seem to understand what they mean. And the cupbearer remembered his inmate in prison and has him summoned to come and interpret the Pharaoh's dreams and Joseph very accurately explains that one dream is to share that there'll be seven years of, of abundance followed by seven years of famine and so the Pharaoh puts him in charge second in command is the vicero, viceroy in charge of storing all that grain in preparation for that famine Meanwhile, the famine's happening not only in Egypt, but also in Canaan, where his brothers are. And so they hear that there's food to be had in Egypt, and they head toward Egypt, not knowing that they're going to go into the palace where their brother, who I guess maybe he's grown a beard or something by now, they don't recognize him. He's a little bit older. he has changed. And Joseph uses that opportunity and many maneuvers to test their resolve. How much do they feel sorry about what they did for him years ago by testing how they want to treat their youngest brother, Benjamin? And through that process, they discover that they have changed as well. And finally, he reveals himself, which leads to this scripture that we read today and that beautiful picture of reconciliation that occurs. Jacob has now passed away. His brothers are concerned that Joseph still might want revenge, and Joseph says to them and reassures them that he's a different man now. God has humbled him and shaped him, and he realizes that all that has happened is really ultimately a gift. And crying, he tells his brothers not to worry, that God used their evil deeds and turned them into something good, not just for them and their family, but for the whole nation of Israel. I think there's some lessons here for us as we think about what happened to Joseph, especially for those of us that have grown up in complicated or even dysfunctional families. Notice how Joseph refused to grow bitter in spite of all those setbacks in his life, in spite of the evil intentions of his brother, in spite of what Potiphar's wife did to him. He took what he had and made the best of it. He continued to do what was right. Joseph also couldn't see at the time God's hand in all the circumstances that eventually he would discover that those challenging times were part of God's master plan, part of God's providence. Without those setbacks, Joseph would have never been put in a situation where he could be of help to not only his family, but for the future of Israel. And Joseph discovered a humility. That allowed him to forgive even the most evil intentions of his brother. He had the opportunity to punish them, but instead he forgave them. He put the past behind him and chose to love and show grace instead of righteous anger. And that's so important for us. Imagine many of us still could have some ill feelings for somebody in our family, right? Somebody who's wronged us, somebody who's hurt us somebody who didn't give us what we needed as we were growing up. They may have been responsible for major pain in your life. And it's important that you name that pain and you put the blame where it belongs. But at some point, you have to let it go. You have to decide that that person was also a victim at some point in their life. They may have done the best they could with the resources they had. Either way, you've got to give that pain over to God and let God bring healing into your life. Joseph made that choice, and it gives us that beautiful emotional scene that we read today. And finally, Joseph embraced that gift of that family rejection as a part of his identity. It's part of who he was now. It's part of what led to his greatness, his ability to rebound over and over again. I don't know about you, but I've noticed in my life Some of the greatest gifts that I'm able to give to my children and to my grandchildren have come because God led me through and out of the pain that I've experienced in my life. Those things have become blessings to me now. Last week, I was sitting with my daughter after having spent a couple of those sleepovers with my five-year-old grandchildren. And I said, you know, I love being a papaw. And she said, well, you're pretty good at it. Well, I'm sure there's a lot better pat Paul's out there than me, but I doubt that there's as many that appreciate that role as myself. So I hope, just like Joseph, whatever you've experienced in your life, no matter what complications, what challenges, you are able to find the peace that Joseph found, to know that God is able to take what is sometimes evil or bad and make something good. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, if there's anyone in this room today still buries the pain of things unmet, of hurts, neglect, whatever they would name, that they can find a way to share that with you and take the path that leads to healing, knowing that it wasn't easy for Joseph, it's likely not going to be easy for us. But you are able to take all these things in our lives and make something good and perhaps even great for the benefit of ourselves, but even more for the benefit of others and your kingdom. This we pray through Christ who is our Lord. Amen.